The rest of us, let's open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23, 24. These are, this has been kind of a difficult teaching. I, I understand that for the last few weeks. And so Paul is dealing with things that are difficult. And anytime anybody comes to Jesus, there's things that need to change by the power of the Spirit. Amen? Anyone? Still working on that stuff? Paul is talking to a group of people that are excited about knowledge and they're excited about freedom. They're excited about knowledge and they're excited about freedom. They know a lot of stuff. They're, they're Greeks. And there's a certain amount of freedom. Anybody knows that when you are free, you also have rights? That's, that's what it implies. Freedom means you have rights. So when our framers of our Constitution, we had a convention and all this type of stuff, we had our Constitution, it was formed, and what happened right after that to satisfy the needs of all the states who were competing against each other? They were making sure that they weren't going to be outdone by each other, and all these other things happened, big historical thing. Historians don't quote me on all that, but then they came up with what? The Bill of Rights. And oh, how we enjoy our Bill of Rights. Anybody? Freedom of speech. Right now, I could freely tell you a bunch of stuff. Amen? And the very fact that we are sitting in this room is, is a testimony to what those people had in mind, that we can open up the Bible and freely teach it, freely worship, freely speak His Word, because... They believed that we were given God-given rights. Now, I'm just saying what they said. And I enjoy those rights. Now, just because I have the freedom of speech, does that mean that I should exercise that whenever and however I want? I could go off on a tirade right now. It'd be fun, right? Would that, and this is what Paul is addressing. People are coming to Jesus, and they have incredible liberties, incredible freedoms in Jesus Christ. How awesome is that? Great? I love that, that I'm free in Christ Jesus. I love the fact that we have the right to bear arms in our nation. I love it. But what I don't like is when someone has the evil black rifle that everybody likes to joke around, walking around in Walmart with it because it's their right. Something's wrong there. Do they have the right to do it? Absolutely. Did people die so they had the right to do it? Absolutely. But what do we do with our rights? What's, how do we govern our rights? This is what Paul is getting at with the church. Obviously, this is hotly contested, Correct. And that is why he's spending so much time on it. He's saying, you have the right, and the issue in that day was to eat meat, sacrificed to idols. There's nothing wrong with the meat. We know that idols are sticks and stones. There's nothing. The idol is actually not alive. You're free to eat that meat. And they love this knowledge. They, they absolutely love the fact that they can do this now. 
And so much so that they're going into the temples and eating at the Temple of McDonald's. Now, the thing I told you about the Temple of McDonald's last night, I was making a lighthearted, there's actually a temple feast going on. There's actually worship going on, and they're participating at the tables just as if we participate at the Lord's table, and Paul's going to get into this. And the problem was is that they are enjoying this liberty at the expense of brothers and sisters who are weaker in the faith, who don't know, who are not yet freed yet to know that those things are not real. The, the idol is not real. It doesn't, there's an, it's, not, it's just a piece of wood. They look at it and they think that there's actually something in that idol. Paul's going to actually talk about it and there's actually something behind the idol. And that the meat is not tainted because it was been offered to anything. It's just meat. God owns everything. But they were placing their own individual rights above their brothers and sisters. They were saying, hey, I have the right to carry the gun around church openly and just who cares because it's my right. And Paul says, yes, you have incredible rights. But what should overrule your right is the law of love. The law of love. And so therefore, I have great freedom and freedom of speech. But is what I say beneficial? Is it going to build, is it going to uh, bring us together? Or is it going to tear apart? Is it edifying? Does it build someone up or does it tear them down? Now, the teachings of Jesus are difficult, and Jesus did come to divide families. Don't get me wrong. We're not backing away from the gospel. The gospel, by its nature, calls men out, women out, people out on their sin. It just says it. And by nature, it's going to cause problems. That's not what he's talking about. Saying, taking your liberty and specifically using it in a way not regarding your brother or your sister in Christ who doesn't have the same understanding of the Lord as you do. And so he's challenging them to give up their rights so that they do not stumble because when they cause that person to stumble who's weaker in their faith, they're sinning against Christ, and that is wrong. See, the law of love is to govern us in our rights as Christians. Amen? That's what's needed in our country, would you not say? And as we move further and further away from the law of love, from being governed by Jesus Christ, we are simply left with rights and knowledge. And what do we use those things for? Whatever our heart, our depraved hearts want. It's not what is best for the other person. It's what I want. And so we isolate and we defend and we build up and it's all about me and what I can do and what I can get out of this. Instead of, what is going to be a blessing to others? I'm not going to yell fire in a crowded place. Why? Because of love. I'm not going to do this or do that because I can, totally I can, but I want to build a bridge for Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's what Paul's saying. And he talks about in chapter 9, this is important. He goes, he, he, not just, he doesn't just say th- uh, this bunch of theory. He doesn't say, hey, this is how it's supposed to be, and just do it. He says, I'm an apostle. Am I not an apostle? And they're like, yeah, you're like awesome. You do miracles and all this stuff. And he said, I saw Jesus resurrected. All these things happen. I have rights as an apostle. And he, and he gives off a list of them in chapter 9. I have a right to have a wife, just like Peter and all these other people. I have a right to that. 
When I walk around and I preach, Jesus commanded that I get a paycheck for that, period. And he says, but I did not do it. He's single, obviously. You know what I'm saying? He said, I did not do it. I had all these rights as an apostle. And he goes off all these things. Shouldn't we have all this stuff? If we reap to you spiritually, should we not reap from you materially? I have all these rights, but I didn't do it, he said. He says, but, uh, in verse uh, 11 or, or 12 of chapter 9, he says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see his mindset? His heart was the gospel above all. Even taking a wife, he realized that taking a wife would cause him to not be able to execute what God had called him to do. And you're going, what? He's not saying that marriage is wrong at all. He, he loves marriage and he, he teaches about it and all that stuff. That's not it. But he's saying to single people, is the gospel preeminent in your life? Is the call of God in your life above everything? Because when you get married, guess what? It doesn't, it's, it's, there's going to be conflict there, and it needs to be above everything. Jesus does not go to second base. It doesn't go, go down to you know, some lesser thing because you got married. He stays at the top, and it's going to cause difficulty if you aren't united in your thinking and your heart and one-minded. And so he's saying... I. I gave up all this stuff. I have all these rights, but I didn't do it. And he goes on to say, actually, even though I'm free, I became a slave to people. And you're like, oh, what? You enslaved yourself? And so verse 19, this is where he ended last week, kind of. It says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. To win as many as possible. Why did he do it? Why did he become servants of all people? To win as many as possible. That's what he was about. And that is what the church of Jesus Christ is about. Because that is what Jesus Christ was about walking on this earth, to win people for Jesus Christ by the way they live and by the way they interact with people around them. If that is not your mission statement, it's time to change it. I exist for the glory of God and to, to bring people to Jesus Christ. And does that, how is that going to look? I don't know. Wrestle with God. You'll have a part in that somehow, however that looks. It might be a mouthpiece. It might be behind the scenes. It might be prayer. It might be financially. It might be something you're all about in some way as a part of the body of the Christ. We are outreach-oriented. We are facing a dark world that needs Jesus Christ, and we reach out to them with the love of Jesus Christ and with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? We become servants of all, slaves to all, he says. And notice how he goes, why? To win some, verse 20, to the Jews, and he gives practical examples of three different people groups, to the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. Notice the word win is repeated. I, I, I became like a Jew to win the Jew. To those under the law, same people, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. I've been freed from the law, and he talks about this in Galatians and Romans. But I, I went to the church services. I, I participated in the things. We're not talking about going to pagan church services. But he says, I was hanging out with them. I was involved in their culture. I wasn't participating in sin. Big difference. 
I was relating with the Jews. Why? As to win those under the law. And to those not having the law, the pagans, all of us, before we came to the Lord. I became like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. In other words, I'm not lawless. He wasn't out, you know, somehow we think in order to reach people, we've got to go, you know, I'm going to go reach drunk people, so I'm going to go be drunk. I'm going to go reach, uh, you know, sexually immoral people, so I'm going to go be sexually immoral so I can relate to them. That's just lunacy. You've lost your witness. You've lost your, you've lost your witness. But you love. You're in the middle of them. Jesus hung out with prostitutes and sinners and people like us. Amen? To those not having the law, I became like them. Not that I'm free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, the law of love, so as to win those not having the law. What about the weak? To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people. And that does not mean he compromised his faith one bit or backed away from the gospel or said things were, oh, yeah, that's cool, you know, just so they could get, be friends with people. Oh, that's okay. You know, go ahead and do whatever you want. It's all right. Well, God who loves you and forgives you. That's not what he's doing straight and narrow but he was in their lives he was involved in their lives he was building relationships with people that were different than him why to win the weak i have become all things to all people so that by all means possible i might save some anything at my disposal is used for the kingdom to win people for jesus my business my health my car, my family, my job, my influence at my job, anything I have, it's all his. It's all for the kingdom. It's all about bringing people to Jesus or being light or bringing glory to God, all those things. If that sounds like the cross to you, welcome to the kingdom. If that sounds like a painful experience to you, welcome to the kingdom. It is for me too. Did you know that? Friends, church, Leaving church, real world, real people, not saying you aren't. Opposition, a lot of it, right? And so my neighbor, I'll talk to my neighbor. Talk about whatever. I mean, we just start getting a conversation. But yes, in my mind, it's not about just getting to know the person. It's about, God, what are you doing? How can I bring your light through what I'm doing? And I don't always sit there and just go, Day one, hey, Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Not that I'm ashamed of it, but I use wisdom in building that relationship. The Holy Spirit puts a a burden on your heart to where you know when you need to start sharing. You've kind of got this, oh, I should have shared by now. Yeah, start sharing. And you also share through your life. Amen? And so you'll discover that tension. But through all things, whatever we're doing, wherever God has placed you in life, how exciting. How many of you, you know, have been stay-at-home moms? Or I say, awesome, great. You have a chance by all means to win your children to Jesus, to win the people you're inter- interacting with with Jesus. How many of you are working, uh, working moms? I'm thinking of Christine right now or, or someone who's worked in all that type of stuff. And you have an awesome influence where you are. How, how does a godly woman, how does a godly woman live her life in a situation to where she's working and she's taking care of home and her husband or whatever it might be, or a single person? How do you shine Jesus in that circumstance? How do you win some? How do you use what God has given you to to shine Jesus in his love and bring people to Jesus? Retired 
dear saints. That's so funny. I, I talk to you, and it's like all of a sudden you guys have, you're not working anymore, yet you are busier ever than before you worked. <laughs> Amen? That's amazing. And you have all these relationships that have built up. And so how now, how is God, what has he given you? And, and how can you use it for his kingdom? Do you see everything is about the kingdom? Paul is thinking this way in his life. And he will eventually say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's what he's getting at. His life is about the gospel. It's about love. That's what Jesus was about. That's what Jesus saved us for, part of, is to be in fellowship with him. And then guess what we do with that experience and that fellowship and that love? With one hand, we reach out to Jesus. And with the other, we bring a friend. I love that old song. With one hand, we reach to Jesus. With the other, we bring a friend. And that's the life of a Christian. One hand onto the Lord and one hand reaching out to the world. That's how we live. And the enemy wants to get in there and mess with it. But he goes, I want to win those. And obviously we know it's the Holy Spirit winning people. That's, Paul's not saying that he, you know, he is the source of that. It is God who does all that. He knows that. He says, it's I who cast the seed and Apollos waters, but it's God who causes the increase. It's the Holy Spirit working, but you have to reach out. You have to put your hand out. You have to attempt. No one's come to the Lord for me, through me. You know, and, and, and you feel kind of weighted. How many people have you shared the Lord with? You've got to step out. That requires faith. That requires denial of self. That requires chance, risk, doesn't it? And rejection and all those things that Jesus might have faced. And when you do step out, guess what happens? You will experience rejection because he was rejected. You will experience persecution because he experienced persecution but you also experience that you might win some some he doesn't say most he says some and he's going to use some in here again and we'll talk about or he's the word most later and we'll see sorry got lost um and so and he goes on verse 24 says, do you not know that in a race all runners run but only one gets the prize Paul's talking, it's about the 600 year of the Olympic Games. They went on for a thousand years before, like in the late 300s, and Emperor said we're enough, enough of that because it was associated with pagan stuff. And so every four years for a thousand years, the Olympics game, Games went on. It was an absolutely sports-crazed culture, like America, right? I mean, they were waiting for the Super Bowl, and if the Super Bowl wasn't on, they were flipping to... You know, ESPN to watch the combine or whatever was going on. I mean, they're just following the trade. I mean, they, this was, it was permeated in their in their culture. And and Paul starts to use this analogy. You see how he's looking at life, and he's going to take an actual physical thing that's going on, like Jesus did with farming and all that stuff, and he's going to take it and put it a spiritual application. So what's this denial of self? What's all this stuff have to do with that putting the kingdom first? He says, don't you know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? How many of you have been athletic and and competed in things? Paul's theology is messed up here because today everybody gets a prize. (laughs) You all get trophies. You're all awesome. You know that, right? Just wanted to make sure. No, only one gets the prize. It's a competition. And now he says, and they're all, they're all tracking with him. Yeah, you've got all these runners who've been spending all this time and only one gets the prize. And what happened is they would, 
they would win, and just like the Olympics, they'd be put on a stand, and, and, they would, and the announcer would go, this is the winner, this is the guy who's above everything. They put this garland wreath or whatever it was, it's made out of leaves, put on his head, and everybody just would go, oh man, how awesome you are. Wow, you're at the pinnacle of this. Only one got it. No, everybody else, they didn't, they didn't get it. And so he keeps, he has this picture in mind. And he goes on, he says, everyone, verse 25, who competes in the games goes into strict training. You would not see me on the Olympic field. You would see me like, and all of a sudden I would get out of camera view like within a second. And I'd just be like flat on my face. You know, they're, they're strict training. And you see these people who, what do they do to train for the Olympics? Have you seen these videos of the Olympics and NFL and whatever you have, I mean, just incredibly intense training on their bodies, what they're doing to themselves. Why would they do that? Why would they do that to themselves? Why would they hurt themselves physically? Why would they run that many miles? And then you know, if, you're, you know, if you're competing uh, at sea level, you go train where? You train in the mountains where there's less oxygen. And so when you come back down, you have a greater advantage, a greater ability. And so people are running around the top of Mount Everest or something, who knows. But the, the lengths that people go to train to get the prize, their eye is on the prize and everything they do, everything they are, everything they eat, everything they say, everything, the people they're around, the, the bikes they buy, the equipment, everything they have is for that purpose. They're single-minded you guys following me? See how Paul's drawn this together? They do it to get a crown that will not last. They do it. Who won the Super Bowl five years ago? 1960, we know that one. But how quickly it fades from our minds, you know? And even the very metal from which something was made will eventually rust and go away. And these people were, were going for a garland wreath, and, and he understands the importance. There's a, there's a lot of symbolism there, so it's not just about the wreath. It's about what they accomplished and who they are and, and, the, and the focus of the culture and what was important. You know, I was reading the other day, the Canadian Football League. Uh, remember, who was it? Oh, I think it was the... Uh, what was it, the homosexual athlete that was, uh, who left the NFL, he went to go play for the Canadian Football League? Yeah, Michael Sands, making $100,000 a year in the Canadian Football League? What does that tell you about our culture? What what does he make, like, you signing bonuses, like the minimum of $450,000, like if you're at the very bottom a year for the NFL? So, I mean... There was great value on the culture placed upon the games. There was great value placed on that culture back then, placed upon what they did. And, and they, they, were, they were playing training for a crown that will not last, but we do it for a crown that will last forever. It will not perish. It will not go away. This is, we're playing for eternity. And what the enemy has done, church, is he has focused, focused all of us on the temporal crown. And that is his game. Take the apple, it's good, 
It'll temporarily satisfy things. You'll have this, you'll have that, you'll be satisfied, and it's not. God created us for eternity and for the crown that he has given us, the fruit that he has given us, the spirit that he has given us, and we will go and we will eat of this all day long, and the enemy has suckered us through our lives, and we end up living for the temporal crown that will fade away, and at the end of our lives, we are void of anything spiritual, we are void of anything eternal, and we've lived for today, we live for our pleasures, we live for all these things, and it's all done. It's sad, and that is what the enemy is doing, that is what Paul is fighting against. He's saying, Put your eyes on eternity. Don't live for now. You're living for the eternal prize. Live your lives in such a way that these guys who bought everything and did everything and the way they worked, the men and the women, they're all there. Everything was focused on that prize, that kingdom, him. Man, is this not speaking? Ouch. That means I would have to change things and that would cause problems in, yeah, It'd be, there'd be conflict in your life and there'd be pain and suffering and it'd be like you're beating your own body. It'd be like those athletes who are putting themselves through tremendous physical situations to produce something, right? And that's what Paul's getting at. Therefore, because of this, because we, we, we were focused on that eternal crown, verse 26, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. <laughs> just picture someone just like, the starting gun goes off, and this guy goes, ah, just starts running in the middle of the field, starts running into walls, or just kind of like, what are you doing? And then he uses another example. Or I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. You know, I'm not just hitting nothing, training at nothing, I'm actually, I need to strike something. I need to hit something. I need to have intention and purpose and focus in my life. Following? No, I strike a blow to my body. I, the word is discipline there. It's to beat black and blue. And so he's drawing it away from just the physical training of of Olympics and he's bringing it over to the spiritual. He's saying, I discipline my body. I'm not going to let myself go and be sexually immoral because that's not my prize. My prize is not here. I'm not going to go out and I'm not going to go eat meat at the temple and do these things because I don't live for my stomach. I live for love. I'm going to beat my body into submission. I'm going to deny myself. And how many of us need to be filled with the Spirit? Because part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And this isn't talking just about diet. It's talking about life. Life. We so much want to focus on what we're eating and not eating. He's talking about this is a heart. This is a spirit about you. This is what you live for. The kingdom. Now I strike a blow to my body, make it my slave. My body's my slave. How many of you are slave to your body? How many things every day you can't live without? Let's just say forget about food, water, sleep. Let's get into the world of sugar and get into the world of got to watch my favorite TV show or listen to this or that. How many of you are enslaved to your phone or your media? Anyone? I struggle with that stuff. Anyone? 
Paul says, you know what? Those, my, that external stuff, that, that is a slave to me. I'm going to make it a slave to me. And this is a work of the Spirit. Do we understand this is a work of the Spirit? This is something when we get close to Jesus, we allow him to take control. He starts to control the things we do and how we act and what we say and where we go. And he starts to focus our hearts and minds on the ministry and the calling that he's called us to. You're all called on the ministry, by the way. You're all ministers. It's powerful stuff. And he goes, no, I strike a blow to my body to make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the, from the prize. That's a scary verse. He's talking about there's an ability to be disqualified. What does that mean? I think he's quoting Matthew and he's quoting other verses. Uh, you know, Jesus said that, you know, you said you did all these great things for me, but I never knew you. Depart from me. So in other words, we can be people who say that we're Christians, but unless our, it's lived out in our lives, we're not. And this is this tension between James, who says, faith without works is dead, and Paul says, I'm saved by grace through faith. Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. You say you're a Christian, it has to be worked out in the way you live. If it is not, if you are living aimlessly, if you are living the way he's been described, he goes, guess what? You could be disqualified. In other words, you never were. That's just scary stuff. And so now he jumps and he goes to their history. For I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, and so he's going hang back into American history, he's going back into Israel history, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. The cloud, that Shekinah glory, that presence of God that was with them. The, God is so holy that he had to surround himself in a cloud. Otherwise they would die. And that cloud would be fire by night. And it would be a cloud of a shadow by day. How many of you have been out in the desert just walking around in fields or wherever it is, how many of you like clouds on a hot summer day? He was their protection, their covering by night, uh, by day, his very presence. And guess what happened? When the cloud moved, what happened? The people moved. Very simple. God makes things very simple. Where God's spirit goes, the people go. And that is how we're to live. He says, they were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea, the, the Dead Sea, when it was, I mean, the, yeah, the Red Sea, when it was parted. And they were all baptized into Moses and into the cloud and the sea. You see, he's drawing spiritual analogies. They all were baptized. They all had God's presence in their lives. They all identified with Moses, just as we've been baptized, just as we've had God's presence, just as we identify with Jesus Christ. You see, he's drawing the analogy. Old Testament, he's bringing it into the New Testament. They had all the religious experiences. They saw great things. God did great things back then. They all ate the same spiritual food. And by the way, uh, the I am's of Jesus are just popping into my mind right now. I am the gate, you know, I am the bread of life, I am the light, you know, the fire, the pillar of fire by night, all these things. And so anyways, 
I'll go there. They all ate the same spiritual food, the manna that came down from heaven. And they drank the same spiritual drink. Do we eat not the same spiritual bread when we have communion together? Do we not drink the same spiritual drink when we have communion together? It's all pictures of the Old Testament, of the reality of Jesus Christ. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied him, and that rock was Christ. Remember when they were in the wilderness, they're complaining, they're hungry and thirsty, and they said to Moses, we are going to die out here, help us. What did he do? He went to the Lord and said, they're gonna, they said they're going to die, so what do we do? He said, I want you to go and I want you to strike the rock. And there was a rock out there somewhere, and somehow it was following them, or, or they just kept coming to it. I have no idea, but they were to go and they were to strike the rock, and he struck the rock, and when he struck the rock, rock, water poured out. Torrents of living water poured out, and they were all satisfied in their souls. Jesus was struck in the depravity, the, 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 the void within our lives was filled by his death. We were dying in the wilderness, and then Jesus was there, and boom, he was struck for us, and now we drink of him, and we have life, and we're sustained. Amen? But what happened again? Moses ruined the picture. How did he ruin the picture? Happened again. They were thirsty out there, and they were complaining, and Moses got mad at the people. He was ticked off. And so he went over there, and God said, now speak to the rock. And what did he do? Did he speak to the rock? He struck it again. Moses had an anger problem. Did you ever know that? He killed a guy. He's striking the rock. He's breaking Ten Commandments. God uses people who have anger problems. Did you know that? But there's consequence. He wasn't able to enter the land because he misrepresented the people. He got disqualified. He got disqualified. He said, because you struck it, because he ruined the picture. Jesus has struck once, but then you speak. You just ask. And water comes forward. And that's the picture of us. He died for our sins once. He satisfied the, 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 the thing in our soul where, where we were sin and separated from God. That was satisfied by him being struck. God's wrath was satisfied. And now we have a relationship with him through faith and we just speak. And we need living water today. Oh God, fill us with your living water. I am empty. I'm thirsty. I need help. I need provision. I need your cloud. I need your spirit. I need all these things. I am void. Help. And water comes forward. Amen. Praise the Lord. Nevertheless, verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They all had these experiences. They all had these spiritual things, yet God was not pleased with most of them. How many is most? Come on, you people who just went through BSF. Tell me, how many is most? How many made it through, through to the promised land? Two. Two. Out of millions, probably one or two million. Caleb and Joshua. And so the rest of them, they hung out in the wilderness. They kept doing their thing, grumbling, complaining, all that stuff where only two went through. Now listen, we can get into why they went through, but the important thing is, is he's warning them. He's drawing a picture. If that's what happened then, do you think you could 
displease God now and get smacked. And I don't think he's talking about eternity. I don't think he's talking about salvation here. Jesus was struck once, all that stuff. I think he's talking about fruitfulness, life, here now. You think he could be wandering around in a desert because of you're wandering aimlessly? You're shadow boxing? You're sleeping with your girlfriend, sleeping with your boyfriend? Before marriage, outside of marriage, you're engaging in a bunch of type of stuff that God says, man, unholy. Can't use you when you're like that. Come to me, get clean. Come to me, holiness. Speak into a church about holiness. Now don't you be ignorant, brothers and sisters, that they were all under the cloud, yet God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And so if you go out to Israel and you go out to Jordan and that whole area, Saudi Arabia, that is a giant graveyard. All these people died in the wilderness. And only the people over 20 years old, the the children of those people, were allowed to go into the promised land. So from that first generation, only two were allowed to go. The old generation, they were grumbling, complaining, all that stuff, and they died. The younger generation didn't know anything of that, and they were shown mercy. And so he says, here's the application. Now these things occurred for as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters. What is idolaters? Literally worshiping idols. Don't do that. Okay, in case if any of you have idols hanging around your house, don't do that. But an idol is anything we place above God. It really is. That's at the heart of idolatry. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were, as is written, the people sat down to drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. And they're speaking of Exodus chapter 32 when they had the golden calf. Remember, Charlton Heston came down from the mountain and Aaron was going berserk. And they got all up. They went to eat and drink and then they just said, we need a different God. Moses is gone. He's not speaking to us, so we're just going to start to satisfy our own souls. And they made golden calf, and Aaron said, oh, look, they just threw all their gold at me, and it popped out of the fire. And what do you know? It wasn't my fault. Aaron's lying. Got people, and this, this, if you have the older version, it says to, they, uh, they sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. The idea is they were sexually immoral. And what happened? God struck them down. We should not commit sexual morality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. If you are having sex outside of marriage, repent. You're in danger of God's judgment upon your life. You're in, in, don't even mess with it. Turn away from it. Run. Run back to God. Flee to God, and he has mercy for you. That's his message. We should not test Christ. Now they're testing Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. That's not fun. Remember that? They were out in the wilderness, and they, got, they, were, compl- they were complaining about the leaders or whatever it was, and and God, so God sent a plague of snakes, and they all were bit. And Moses had to put this steel pole with, this, with a brass snake on it, and anybody looked at it, he had to raise it up, and anybody looked at it was healed, and those who didn't, didn't. And what is that Jesus said? Jesus used that same picture as a picture of himself. He became sin for us, that anybody who looks upon him in faith would be healed from the bite of sin. So don't be like that. Don't test God. 
We, aren't gonna, we don't have enough to eat. We're not going to drink. And God, you don't provide for us. And I just want to go back to Egypt. And that's what they did in their hearts. And they went back to Egypt. And they did the things that they would do in Egypt. They did it while they're out there following God. And so there's this abandonment of the Lord. Don't test God like that. Don't do that, Paul's saying. This is New Testament we're talking about. This is New Covenant. And Paul's saying, don't test the Lord. Don't do that. Turn back to the Lord. And then we should not, and it says in verse 10, and do not grumble as some of them did. And we're killed by a destroying angel. A plague came through. That's uh, Numbers chapter 12, I think, or 21, I can't remember. Don't, don't do that stuff. Are we grumbling? Are we sexually immoral? Are we testing God? Are we complaining about things in our lives? Is that our spirit? Because guess what? That's the spirit of the age. That is what you see on TV. That is what you see all around you. That is the spirit of the age. That is not the spirit of Christ. My rights, why don't I have, and you'd better, and I want, and blah. You see what Paul's getting at? There's no humility. There's no thankfulness. There's no grace. There's no change. And Paul's saying, if you're doing that, you're a shadow boxer, and you better be careful because you probably, where's the Lord in there? That's scary stuff. And so, verse 11, sorry, where am I? Verse 10? My goodness, yeah, verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come, the end times. And so if you think that you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you're in the faith, you better test it. Because if you are ruled by your rights, if you are ruled by the flesh, if you're complaining, if you're grumbling, if you're, if you're sexually immoral, live in that lifestyle, no thought of the gospel, no thought of the kingdom, no thought of the broken, the lost, all that stuff, if you are, you better be careful lest you fall. And he, just to comfort him, he says, no temptation has, over, has overtaken you except that was common to mankind. The same thing that's happening to them back in the wilderness has happened to you right here in Corinth. And by the way, the same thing is happening right here in this church in Walla Walla to everybody in this room. These are all temptations. These are all things that happen. They're all common to us. We're all prone to them. Amen? And he finishes up, and I just want to finish this last part and we'll be done. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man. And underline this, circle it, star it, put your whole heart on it, and God is faithful. Yes. Because when I start looking at me, when I'm tempted, when I start looking at me and my abilities and all these type of things, there are problems. We are going down. I've hit an iceberg. It's not good. But when I look to God's faithfulness in my life, in your life, when we look to God, when we are overwhelmed with sin, when we are overwhelmed with failure, when we're overwhelmed, even with a hardened heart and you don't even want to deal with things, I have a hard heart, God, I don't even want to talk to you, but God, you are a God who changes things. You are a God who creates something out of nothing. Change my heart and even throw up that prayer. God is faithful. I love God. He's faithful. And this is the promise. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear 
What does that mean? That temptations will not come your way? And that word temptation is also word tested. Is also the word tested. They're interchangeable in Greek. And that means that God can test you while the enemy is tempting you. God does not tempt you. Does that, understand? does that make sense? The Lord tests. He allows you to have situations in your life. The enemy tries to draw you away in that same circumstance. So some of you feel tested. Yes, you're tested. The Lord wants to see if you're faithful, if you're leaning towards him. And the enemy will use that same opportunity to draw you away. God will not let you be tempted, tested beyond what you can bear. Does that mean there's going to be no temptation? No, he says there's going to be temptation. There's going to be testing, but it's not beyond what you can bear. What does that mean? He says, but when you are tempted or tested, he will provide a way out, a way of escape, so that you can endure it. That word for a way out is mountain pass. That means this. It's a narrow way out. And how many of you know when you tempted, that window is closing? And it's closing rapidly, and you just have to run through the straight and narrow. And that is what the Lord's saying. He'll provide that way out, but you've got to start booking. And that's how you bear it. And so he goes, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Don't even mess around with that stuff. And now he's saying again to you as, as sensible people, flee from idolatry. If that stuff is associated with idolatry, what are you doing eating a hamburger in the temple McDonald's while there's demonic stuff going on there? Don't even be a part of it is where he's going. Why are you eating at the Lord's table? Why are you even messing around with that? And then you're also eating at the table of demons because there's actually demons behind idolatry, and that's what he's going to get at. So be holy, people. Be holy, church. Look at your history. Look at what happens. God, God wants a holy people. He didn't buy, and, didn't buy you so you could go out and continue to do what you do in grace. He saved you to be salt and light and to be disciplined and focused like a laser beam on the lost and on his love. Amen? Lord God, we come before you now. We ask that any heart, any mind, any soul that is like the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, tempting you, Lord, grumbling, complaining, sexually immoral in relationships we should not be in. We ask that your spirit would uh, provoke them, and I believe it has as we've been speaking. I pray that there be repentance today to turn from the darkness and turn towards the light and to call it what it is. I'm caught, I'm sinful, help. And Lord, you have been struck for that provision. You have died for that provision and I pray that their blood would cleanse them and now that they would just receive the living water. Lord, for the rest of us uh, who are, um, I'm sure we're all struggling in some way there, but we're, we're desiring to walk out with, after you and, and what does our life look like walking for the kingdom? What needs to change? Lord, somehow it involves pain. And so I pray that we would introduce pain into our lives that would be beneficial to others and be beneficial to you and would please your heart. And that as we deny ourselves, as Jesus walked on the earth, as we change how we live and our habits and what we do, if not focused for a temporal gain, but for eternal gain, that we might win some. I pray that you would put that in the heart of this church going forward as if it isn't already, but you'd magnify it. You would grow it. You would be exponential. And people would come to Jesus 
not because of a program, but because we are fiercely in love with you and fiercely desiring to please you and to live like you live, Lord. So have your way in this church. In the name of Jesus, amen.